So, Scotty, I heard you got thrown out of Switzerland by not paying your 12,000 franc bill. Is that true? No, we weren't thrown out. The Swiss are lovely people. But but they, everything is super expensive. Everything is expensive, yes. But I guess everything everything is priced relative to, with about the same relative scale as it would be in, in most other European countries. Just everything is a little bit more expensive. Obviously, they have their own currency. They're not in the euro. It's the Swiss franc. Um, and it, yeah, it does it does feel expensive. But equally, their minimum wage is pretty high. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a, still poverty there, any, like there is in any nation. So um, people earn uh, you know, more francs than maybe someone across the border earns in, in euros. So um, if you live there, it's probably fine. I don't know. I don't live there, so I can't comment. But I'm, I'm guessing it's for a person who lives there, it's... Uh, I guess it might be like, you know, in the Valley, California, that everything is more expensive. However, mm. um, you know, people get on, you know, people in good jobs, um, you know, like we do, get paid more money. Uh, I think the issue is more, you know, in you know, the people who work in the in the coffee shops or in the in the supermarkets who don't get paid relatively a lot more money than someone say in uh, Montana or Idaho do. Uh, that's where things being expensive become a problem. Hmm. So the important thing to do is to always be a Swiss banker or a software engineer in Palo Alto. I think, yeah, we have to uh, we have to remember, John, for all our bitching we do on this show and uh, in, on Twitter and in our industry, we are incredibly, uh, you know, lucky people. We earn a very good salary on the whole for doing something um, we enjoy. And that makes us uh, uh, incredibly blessed because there's an awful lot of people in the world who get nothing, neither of those two. Mm. Well, Apple is doing its best to try and make us less wealthy by cutting their affiliate rate, aren't they? They are. I, I, I didn't see that one coming at all. Did you? Uh, you mean my segue or Apple's decision? <laughs> oh, well, both, really. I thought the segue was excellent. I thought the segue was excellent, by the way, until you had to mention it was a segue and we ruin it every time. We're like one of those people. Every time we do something good, we have to, we have to point it out because no one else will. <laughs> because around here, something well done is mighty rare. It's it's like a small child that's you know good once in a whole day and then has to come and point it out to you how good they've just been. <laughs> uh, so I I didn't see the excellent segue coming, John. But what about the uh, the change? Was did you see any indications or no. change that Apple were going to reduce? Was it from seven percent to two and a half percent? That's quite a big drop as well. It is. Well, you know, I was at the Russian baths with Tim Cook and he said nothing of it. Yeah, well, that's uh, he kept that one very close to his chest. So, um, is it a big deal? Do you think or not? I don't know. I think that nobody makes money on the app store anyway. So, <laughs> now I, I don't know. Uh, it probably is for certain types of apps. I, I'm sure it's a very big deal. Well, I mean, a lot of developers use affiliate links to link to their own apps from their own website, don't they? Um, yeah. And Apple have had no issue with that i believe i don't believe they're breaking any rules so it has been a a in some ways it, it's a way of maybe making apples cut down to 23 percent instead of 30 percent really if you're getting that but um mm. and i guess so they've crossed some of that back but there are sites that do reviews that rely on the links but um it just you know it apple are a business um you know but I, i'm not sure that this amount of money is going to move the profit line anywhere in any way that anyone would notice. So 
I, I just wondered why why they've done it. And, and it doesn't, um, you know, well, maybe at WWDC they're going to say something else and, you know, they will say, ah, that makes sense why they did this in advance or something. Um, you know, because maybe there's going to be some good news at WW and they didn't want any bad news. So they do the bad news now. Um, so we've all forgotten about it by the time they announce something else in, in, in WW. But um, we will, uh, um, we'll see, I guess. But uh, uh, I mean, p- people were seemed. A little upset by it for a day, but it's not like I've not heard the news just carry on and on and on. So I guess it's not, you know, it's not going to put anybody out of business, hopefully, um, by, by the sense I get. Is that the sort of sense you get about it? Yeah, I think it's, it is. It just, I, I think Gruber's take on it was, was good. It's like, oh, I hardly knew that this thing existed. And I don't, you know, I had affiliate links on Amazon for a bit and, and it's always been less than a rounding error. So I think that. But as I said, kind of for, 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 you know, yeah, if you do run a review site and you're sending lots of people to very specific app store links, maybe you notice that. But I don't think that such sites are, are, are critical to the ecosphere. And, you know, maybe they are. I don't know. Well, I think I think I read somewhere uh, from a couple of sites that in their early days, it was their only revenue. But as the sites grew in popularity, they get sponsorship or, or other things. And so it's... Um, uh, and and I think for people who for whom is there any revenue, then you know that website is not their main job or career. It's a sideline hobby, so it's like a some pizza money disappearing, maybe. Anyway, so what you been up to this week, John? Uh, well, I in this week in complaints, I can complain about MP Volume View. I think I was complaining about it last episode, and I found new reasons to complain about it. Would you like to know why? I would love to know why you want to complain about it, John. Okay, well, so. Uh, uh, I was working on something where I wanted to have a custom volume view um, that is a little bit nicer than the, the standard one, which blocks the screen, which can be very annoying if you're adjusting volume and you can't see what's behind it. And uh, there's no direct API for accessing the hardware buttons, but there's a trick that, that people use, which is to essentially take an MP volume view um, and add it to a view hierarchy. but make it invisible by basically making it occupy a, a CG rect zero, right? Um, so it's not visible, but you can you can you can access the volume control programmatically by looking at, at the the volume views, you know, subviews. And uh, you can do something clever where you can find a slider and then you can add an action to it and then the action can do whatever you want it to be. It can you can use it to to, to every time the volume you know the value is changed, you can have it update your own slider or some other view and, and do whatever you want with that information, which is great. But I, you know I think that uh, you know in reading through Stack Overflow postings about how to make custom you know route pickers, and that was something I was working on uh, a couple of weeks ago. Everybody says that everybody wants to do it, but Apple doesn't give any direct API for doing it. They really just want to have their own view, and you can add it to a view hierarchy, and you can't really customize it. And it's, it's a kind of a take it or leave it proposition. Um, and so, it, 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 I swear. And, and one day, I'm, I'm sure I will meet an Apple engineer, and, and they will slap me for saying this. But I think it is the most vindictive of Apple's classes that I've encountered because they go out of their way to 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 try and foil you. So, for example, if you add it to a view hierarchy that is hidden or whose opacity is is set to zero, it won't initialize. And it's not all that uncommon to have a view hierarchy that has itself hidden. You know, while you're setting it up, and then you make it visible at some other time. But nope, has to be you know, has to be visible, and and it's 
you know, it makes sense, I suppose, or, or it's like, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense after you struggled with it, but not while you're trying to figure out why it's not working. And the other thing that is uh, a little bit troublesome with it is that uh, there's the kind of system volume, the, the setting it knows to be, and then there's the, the, you know, the UI that represents what it is. So a slider or a progress view or whatever. And so when you add it to the view hierarchy, if you've attached a method to, to the slider, you know, that, that's a sub view of MP volume view, uh, it will, you know, the method to that it will basically have its its value change the slider will change and then your method will get called and it'll actually be get called multiple times and that can be damaging if you don't want it to to, to be visible you know while you are uh while you're setting up your view right you're adding it to the view hierarchy your view controller is initializing and you don't want it visible right away so you kind of have this strange conundrum ended up having to solve it by you know kind of a roundabout way of having container view in my my view so i add the the volume view to a view but then i have a container view which contains the rest of my ui the container view can be hidden you know using whatever technique you want either hiding it or you know by having its its constraints set to, to move that container view off screen or to set its height to zero whatever technique you want to do but if it's on the container view containing your ui elements no problem um, and so it's like a, another one of those cases where to get something working, you struggle, you struggle, you struggle, and you get it working, but you think, wow, I've not advanced the state of, of, of the art of anything. I've merely persevered. So that's my complaint for the day. It, I mean, it does seem a bit silly when, you know, surely adding, you know, three API calls, reduce volume, what is volume, and increase volume would just make all that a lot easier for people. Well, and I think, you know, it makes me wonder about something because you remember all the controversy that existed when, I can't remember the name of the app, but it was it Camera Plus? It was like the first camera app that used the volume control um, as essentially as, as a shutter switch, right, for your camera because when you have the, the phone in portrait, or sorry, you know, in, in, in landscape, you know, it, it, it's positioned in a nice place, but then that's illegal API. And so they, they went out of their way to, to disallow that. And then there was the, the, the crazy thing that they did where, you know, they submitted the app and it didn't do that, but then you could visit a web page with a custom URL that would then enable that feature. And so I get the, that's where I get this feeling where they were playing cat and mouse with somebody, uh, well, with, with developers who were trying to do things that Apple themselves didn't want people to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, where's the line? Because I mean, obviously that you know, using the um, uh, the volume button or whatever it was to be a shutter on the camera, I guess that changes the use of a piece of a button on the hardware. So I can sort of understand why Apple would protect that. And again, you know, it's it's their ecosystem; it's up to them. Um, but you know, part of you then says, yeah, but you know, just let them get on with it. But then there's um, stuff like that came out from Uber. Uh, oh, yeah. This week, where they were, where they were purposely, you know, uh, putting code in to say, well, this must not happen if in this geographical area. In other words, Cupertino, um, so that an Apple reviewer will never get to see this. But once you're outside, that's that's fine, type of thing. Um, and it wasn't, and it was well, not even that wasn't doing something that the user was turning on and off. That was just being breaking the rules, full stop. You know, not even guidelines. Um, and so you sort of understand why, you know. Apple would stand up and say, this is exactly why we try and protect you from um, with our rules. Um, uh, so I think possibly 
well, part of the reason, or you might want to call it the problem, is I think Apple don't like caveats. They like to just say, here is the rule, it's the rule. And that makes it easier than having to say, this is the rule, except in this circumstance, except in this circumstance, except in this circumstance. Um, because it just, you know, and, and they understand that sometimes, you know, the rule is introduced for reason A and it can sometimes affect reason B, but they say, well, we're prepared to have that. Because right. um, we, we like, that, that's that's just my take on maybe how they do this and why they do this. Because otherwise, you know, the, the App Store... Um, Submission guidelines are complex enough as it is, but if you had uh, 25 exceptions to everything, um, they'd be even less <laughs> understandable than maybe I don't know. It's there, but it's uh, it's 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 uh, sad that you you had to spend your week in such pain. I did, but so in the stand up today, people, you know, when we're telling people what they were working on, I, I said that. Uh, that I'm practicing my acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize uh, for World Peace because of something I worked on that now is starting to work nicely. Because I, I figured that anything that reduced frustration, since uh, you know who knows who's using your app, so it could be Kim Jong-un using your app, and then, wow, he finds it happier, and then he'll be less inclined to launch a nuclear attack on Los Angeles. Or maybe Trump himself will, will be... Uh oh, I mentioned the word. Now we're going to get more people saying mean things. Or getting up. <laughs> there we are. Let's, let, let's, let's quickly move on. Let's quickly yeah. move on. Talk, talking of uh, frustration and irritation, um, do you do code reviews where you are? Uh, we do. Yeah. So, what, what's, yeah, obviously can't talk about specifics and whatever else, but, uh, you know, what's your 20,000 foot view on, on the good and the bad of code reviews? Well, I think that, you know, many people will, will make pull requests just so they can package up their changes um, for their own kind of benefit to be able to say, here's a nice set of packages, you know, a package set of changes. And then, you know, sometimes they will put that out to review. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they kind of do it for informational purposes. Sometimes it's because the, the code base into which they're submitting it has very careful rules. So it kind of depends on the code base. But, you know, generally speaking, I think it... it it comes down to there are things that become very obvious for somebody who's not been in the, the the weeds of something. So I think you can only, you know, you can only improve things by allowing other people to have a look at it. I think from my point of view, because I've been doing this for a while, and I think I'm pretty good at, at, at naming conventions and using the right APIs, just, yeah, again, from having done it a while, um, it's, I think it's satisfying for me, not in a vindictive kind of, oh, look, I know something that you don't, but just saying, hey, you can make your life easier or this is not immediately clear to me. I think that's probably, to me, the best reason to do it because, um, you know, I, I, I like to say when I, when I leave documentation or I spend time, you know, making the code as clean as possible, I'm doing it either for future me or present someone else. And present someone else is somebody who's not, not seen the stuff, is not aware of what you're doing and why. Um, so for that reason, I think code reviews are very good just as, as, a, as a reminder and to yeah, just to, as, a, as another sanity check before you commit something so because uh, you're going to have to live with it. You know, if, if, if it's a real shipping app and not a prototype or not something that you're using to learn, you know, you have to accept the fact that one day you might not be there or, you know, you're, you have, will have moved on. And so the cleaner the code you, you submit, the better. 
Yeah, I think. I mean, I have a love hate relationship with code reviews. I'm definitely, I'm definitely for them in principle. Um, I'm not necessarily for the way they get done in some places. Um, obviously, as a, a contractor, I move around uh, different jobs, and what happens in code review can vary quite dramatically. Um, firstly, I'd say code review is not a replacement for unit testing. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think the two go together, and in some ways, one of the one of the jobs of code review is to um, do the check that the you believe the code is being adequately covered by the unit tests that have been submitted with the code. Mm. Um, so that's uh, uh, that's cool. Uh, I think exactly as you said, just someone asking, is this code legible? Is it readable um, for someone who's not seen it before? Um, can that person understand what the code is doing without the knowledge that you had when you wrote it is... Um, is great because that person will be you again in a couple of months so they are helping you even though it might sound like they're um being critical when they put comments back in code review it is you know it would you know if they're being decent about it um I, i'm not a fan of it being used to to enforce um code style mm. um may, maybe things like naming conventions yes but not you know um uh, spaces here and uh, curly braces on this line or that line. Um, I, I because it that's that's fine, and I have no problem with 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 code style. If um, if it's important to the team, then you know code style is is fine, and 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 that's all cool. Um, I've just found sometimes uh, in places where there is a code style, that's all that gets reviewed. Mm. Um, and that becomes irritating when someone points out all your space errors or, or whatever else, but they don't actually tell you whether the code's any good or not. If the person is, you know, just a meticulous person who's, you know, doing the proper code review plus pointing out the spaces, that is totally different. That that That's fine. Um, however, I think if you're going to be a, uh, a place that has a code style, then you should introduce a linter to, to the, the process and um, just lint the code before you submit it each time and then you shouldn't get any code style um, spacing or whatever errors because it should be fixed for you um, you know whether that appears as uh, uh, whether that gets done automatically or they appear as warnings in, in, in your Xcode because the code style is broken um, uh, that's a better way if you're going to have code style because then you know if, if you submit a, uh, some code that is full of warnings because of code style then you know you have every right to be slapped around because you should never submit code that's got warnings in it um, unless you can thoroughly explain the reason that warning cannot be got rid of uh, as opposed to you're just too lazy to go fix it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so overall, I think it's a, it's a good thing um, uh, and it does spot bugs. Um, it is not, is, it's not, it's not a second pair of eyes as in pair programming because you're you know when you're doing a code review I, th- I think another problem with code review is how if your if your schedule as a developer is being set without making allowance for a decent amount of time to review other people's code then code review just becomes a frustration to you because you're not getting your job done um because you have to look at somebody else's code whereas if reviewing code is seen as a a um, perfectly valid part of how you spend your week and your sort of um, coding deadlines, if you have them, or or schedules are based around the fact that you might be doing code review for 10 hours this week, then that's good. Otherwise, otherwise people resent doing it and they don't do it properly and 
the tone of resentment comes across in the code review as well. Yeah, you know, why are you wasting my time with this code? Exactly. Um, yeah, or people who people who are bitchy in in code review. That's all. That that's all. No, I just want to slap them very hard. Uh, um, you know, you're part of a, part of a team. You know, do this. You know, don't don't do it to slap people down. Do it to help people. Um, but it is it does vary quite a lot from from place to place. And I think the attitude, whether the the say the team make it an important part of thing which is allowed for, which creates a positive attitude towards the code review. Same with testing as well, really. If you make testing something that you say, yes, yes, of course, the timeline will be 50% longer because you're writing tests. You know, everyone's got to write it. I think a lot of people's problem with tests is you've only given me two days to write this and you want tests. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's good. But if people out there have code review horror stories or code review for the win stories, um, yeah, I'd be interested in uh, in hearing some um, uh, because it's uh, – I definitely wouldn't like someone, especially when it comes down to uh, contractors and whatever as well, so I definitely wouldn't be a particular fan of someone just being able to merge code into my master branch without someone else having seen it and checked it first. So um, that's uh, – there we are. That's my take. So, Scotty, um, you're counting down the days before you get on a plane again, or no, you're not going to be on a plane for a while? I get on a plane at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Really? And you spoke with me? Wow, I feel so loved. I am, yes. So I'm, I'm heading back heading back to uh, sunny California for a couple of weeks. Hmm. So, um, so now I'm, I'm trying a new, a, new, a new route or route, just to make sure I'm internationalized for all our listeners. Or listener, depends where he is, um, or she is. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm flying into Oakland this time. Um, oh, wow. BA have just started a direct flight from London to Oakland every day. Um, um, so it's uh, uh, obviously they've is, is a uh, new flight. So they're trying to promote the route, so it's a little bit cheaper. So we'll see how, how it goes. Um, yeah, so. Uh, I've never um, never been to Oakland Airport. Not that I, you know, not that I like doing a tour of the world's airports and you know writing a review guide of them. But um, so, yeah, so I'm looking over. What's the weather like in California at the moment? Because last time, last few times I've been there this year, it, it's been you know wet and miserable. That's sunny and perfect. Excellent. I've been, I was in uh, as I said last week, and you sort of pointed out in the in the top of the show that um, you know, I was in uh, Switzerland um, uh, for the first part of this week and. Uh, you know, when I got there last Sunday, the sun was shining. It was beautiful, and that carried through to um, uh, to Monday. And uh, so I was in in Luzon, which is uh, on the lake and in the, in the Alps. So you've got the mountains behind the lake, and you've got the lake, and you know the, the great some of the great Swiss architecture. And the sun was shining, and it was sparkly, and it was like beautiful. And then I think you know Tuesday morning, rain, mist. Yeah, this is back to being Europe in, in April. <laughs> it's mm. here we are. But um, had a great time at the App Builders Conference. Had um, I was doing, I said last uh, week I was interviewing, so I wasn't speaking as such. I was doing interviews, um, which I think went down quite well. The response has been pretty good. I mean, as as the person doing them, I I uh, I had great fun. They were um, uh, uh, they were incredibly informative and, and um, you know often entertaining. Um, and I think the people in in the audience at the, at the conference enjoyed them as well. Um, I haven't heard feedback from the organisers yet, or seen it on on people's responses. So I will follow up that because this conference opens a GitHub issues, a GitHub repo, repo, and get people to post their reviews on the conference's issues, which I think is quite a good way of doing it as well. Um, uh, in there, so but uh, on the Tuesday, I did. Um, I interviewed a, a, a particle physicist from CERN called uh, Sergey Glazer, 
and uh, I've probably just mispronounced his name now, but um, uh, that was, you know, he was talking about machine learning uh, that they use at CERN and why they're trying to do machine learning and just some of the problems that they're having. And it was just fascinating because he works on the Hadron Collider. He was part of the whole um, team that did the Higgs boson thing was it a couple of years ago, um, which obviously was very exciting. Um, but they, they, they smack the particles into each other, and that's the word he used. Um, and they get masses of data. Yeah, and his response was there is not enough data storage. Even with the data centers everywhere, there is not enough data storage in the world for them to store the data from every collision they make. Um, it wow. just it just couldn't happen. So uh, they have to and and processing that data. You know, you know, even you did these 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 collisions are happening every twenty nanoseconds, and so you know, even saying we. We could get enough storage and put it offline. The fact of getting back through that data would be almost impossible as well. You know, it, it's it's like um, all those books you put by the bed you intend to read one day, and the pile gets bigger, and you never go back and read them. Um, so they, you know, they've been, he's been working on machine learning stuff because basically, when this particle collision happens, they have twenty nanoseconds to decide: do we keep this data or do we not keep this data before the next collision happens. And says, you know, so, you know, and in that data could be something that changes the understanding of physics in the world totally. Um, and so they're using machine learning and, and a bunch of um, neural networks to try and sort of just say, does this data look normal or is there an anomaly in here we need to be looking at? And I just found that whole, um, you know, the whole view of, of, of that being an approach that someone's having to do uh, and, and, and the uh, sort of practicality behind that was, was just fascinating listening to it. And, and the talk was, uh, uh, the interview was uh, filmed, so I'm hoping it will come out and we can put a link to it because I think um, uh, people would find it uh, thoroughly entertaining, and I find it, you know, thoroughly interesting. So it was just, um, it was just great to be uh, seeing someone who was developing, you know, software effectively um, using different tool sets in something very different to what 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 we're doing, but equally had just as much passion and the same sort of issues, but maybe on a different scale. And that was, I just really, really enjoyed that uh, that interaction. So that was fun. So I recommend to people, we'll put a link at some point when the video comes out. I'm not sure how long it'll be, um, but uh, I, I would definitely recommend that one, not just because I'm in it, because I try and keep out the way and let him talk because uh, he, he was very good at it. Wow. And did you also uh, interview Laura Kelbag? I you? did. Uh, that Yeah, that was a, a, an interesting um, session. Again, that was videoed. Um, uh, we were speaking about privacy um, and... Not just privacy, but the what's, you know, it, it's more about, uh, you know, how the internet tracks you and then what this data is used for. Again, a lot of machine learning involved um, in, in, you know, how, how the data, if you go to, you know, it, it's obvious everywhere. And I just ignore it most of the time, which is really bad. But, you know, you, you, you do a Google search. I, well, I did this the other day. I needed a water softener for, for home. Um, so I did a Google search of a, a water softener, you know, one of the ones that fits in your water supply, not because um, we have very hard water in, in our area, not a, not just one you put by your kettle. Um, and that was it. Every site I visited for the next two weeks, I was getting adverts for water softeners. Um, and you just learn to ignore it. But actually, that's quite, you know, if, if that's happening everywhere you go, that's quite a lot of data being gained about you that could be used for or against you. Um and you know we say this all the time, but you know when you're using a free service like Gmail or um, 
you know, uh, uh, um, Facebook or whatever else. You have to remember you are the product. Um, and even though there's the privacy things and whatever you tick, and uh, it's in every time you sign up to another free service, you just probably make the problem bigger. And yet it's all driven. The issue is here. It's, it's the fact that we accept it um, because everyone, you know, is developers. We all know this. You know, if there's a free account on something, you sign up for that rather than pay the 20 bucks a month account because why wouldn't you? Mm. But those people can't give you that service for nothing. You, you know, there's, if there's engineers working on it and people know, where's their money coming from? That company has to be making money from somewhere and they're making money from the data you give them. Um, and we can get all, you know, self-righteous about it and say that's just wrong okay stop using the free accounts if you've got a problem with it if you've got a problem with data privacy um then in and and what's going on then you if you are using free accounts of things and places rather than using the paid account then you are part of the problem um i'm saying this very bluntly laura was far more diplomatic and um had far more evidence around things than i'm saying so i'm, I'm doing my summary and you know, um you know so don't use a free email account. Pay for your email. Don't use the free account on you know uh, GitHub. Pay for something you know because that's that's how this problem is going to be solved. That you provide better income streams from elsewhere. Now, can me just paying for something make a difference? Probably not. But you got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. I always wonder when when you know when I take a, a a Lyft for example, and the you know the the navigation tells you to take the circuitous route and you decide not to do it or basically they give you any route and, and you decide not to take it if they look that at that as as a psychological experiment and then they say oh they do not follow directions so send them ads for like harley davidson's or you know weekends in las vegas with prepaid legal services or things of that nature and if you do follow it to a t maybe they you know i don't know what they do they kind of sell you life insurance at, at more favorable rates but it, it, it i'm sure that there's something to be seen but it's i was when i was taking a the the taxi home this evening they proposed this insane route and the guy was not from san francisco so he didn't know anything to do other than to follow it and it was just it was absurd and i think that you know it it may have been some machine learning say well there's some little bit of traffic so if we can send this on this strange way of of doing it because it seems good on paper um but in practice it it actually wasn't you know uh yeah because i mean i think the fact that you know GPS is now reacts to real time traffic information is good, but they're not going to make they're not going to get that perfect to what maybe the local knowledge is going to say about that. Right. But it it is yeah I mean um, it is they learning everything from everything John I mean I know when I say they are it sounds like it's like the big conspiracy theory, um, but you know there was uh, Laura was showing a story about um, how some people's credit scores. You know, they were looking at different ways. And obviously, sometimes they just do experiments and then they say, we're not going to do that. And sometimes they say, we are going to do that. Um, and we can't always tell the difference. But, you know, how people were applying for a loan and part of the success or failure, it was based on uh, the financial understanding the system had of their friends on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, could you afford to know poor people because they could be affecting your ability to get a loan <laughs> oh, wow. type of thing. And, and again, that's a, that's a very much an oversimplification of, of the thing. But, you know, these are real decisions that are being made by, by effectively people in their implementation, but being made through the data 
being made possible through the fact that the you know people have so much data these days and i think um uh you know that can be used for good and it can be used for bad uh and uh, there we are and i'm sure we'll talk about this lots more um in the in the future because i think it's just going to get a bigger and bigger uh thing i think a lot of it is a real issue that we've just come to accept and we probably shouldn't accept and i am going to review what i what i'm signed up to for free and decide whether i should stay on that start paying for it or, or just get out um, just because I don't want to be a naive part of the problem. I'm not saying I'm going to get rid of everything that's free, um, but I'm going to be more aware of what I'm signing up to in this in this nature. Um, and even if it's just because they've got my email address, mm. um, you know, because, you know, the fact that I use this service in a certain way and then there's a way of them giving that email address to someone and saying, here's, here's how this person uses it, you know, could be, could be enough to cause problems at some point in the future. Well, Anyway, John, if somebody wants to cause you problems, how should they get hold of you? I stole my segue. Oh, well, you can send your bots to look at my tweets uh, under the name Jembe. That's D-J-E-M-B-E, like the West African drum. And if you want to solve my problems as opposed to cause me any, you can get hold of me on Twitter as <laughs> MacDevNet. And um, you can email us at the show at feedback at iDeveloper.co. We'd love to hear your stories about uh, privacy or... Um, your, your opinions on code review or your opinion on anything else that you would like to give us an opinion on. Um, we love hearing from people. And uh, so thank you very much for listening. And uh, until next time, you take care. <laughs>